Hey, it's Erica. I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to Global News What Happened to ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. In late June 2013, a train carrying petroleum crude oil left Newtown, North Dakota. The oil had been extracted from the Bakken field, and it was bound for Irving Oil, a refinery in St. John, New Brunswick, over 3,500 kilometers away. Over several days, the train wound its way through the U.S., crossed the border to Canada from Detroit through Windsor. Then it went through Toronto and Montreal. 72 tank cars carrying 7.7 million liters of crude oil chugged along the winding tracks through the eastern townships in Quebec. About a week after the train left North Dakota, it arrived in Nantes, Quebec, where it parked overnight. Meanwhile, people in the small town of Lac Megantic, less than 15 minutes away, were doing what they normally would on a Friday night. Some stayed in to unwind from the week. Others went to a bar to meet up with some friends. Unbeknownst to them, back in knots, the train filled with highly combustible crude oil had come loose and slowly gained momentum as it followed the tracks down a hill. It was headed straight for Lac Megantic. People in the town had no idea the unmanned train was on its way. And in a matter of minutes, tragedy would strike. The town of Lac Megantic was an inferno. But what happened to those people who were just living their lives in this small Quebec town, which suddenly and without warning, was engulfed in flames. Who was responsible for the preventable disaster? And what would happen to them? I'm Erica Vella, a reporter with Global News, and today we find out whatever happened to the Lac-Megantic train derailment. It's probably fair to say very few people knew of Lac Megantic before July 6, 2013. It's the type of place you might have only come across if you're from the area, or maybe you had a cottage nearby. The mostly French-speaking town in Quebec is about two and a half hours east of Montreal. It has a population of about 6,000 people. It's also now the site of one of the worst rail disasters in Canadian history. For this episode, I wanted to really get to know the town, meet the people, walk in their shoes, and see what exactly has happened since. So I drove there.
It's about seven hours away from Toronto. And on the drive, I weaved in and out of Quebec's eastern townships, places like Cookshire, Scottstown. These little towns are dotted between huge hills with massive towering trees. It's easy to get lost in the beauty of this area. Now, for this trip, I asked Mike Armstrong to join me. He's a reporter for Global National, and he knows this town and the people very well. He's covered the story from the very beginning, and he remembers getting that first phone call. One of our producers woke me up at about 5 o'clock in the morning and said there's been a train crash, there might be people dead. Um, pack for a couple of days, and I was here for 11 days, and uh, never covered anything like it. I mean, I've been to tragedies all around the world, the tsunami, the earthquake in Haiti, plane crashes, you name it, but I'm from Quebec. I'm actually from the Eastern Townships originally. Uh, This tragedy felt like it was at home, and it was people with French accents, and, and it was the language I'm used to, and it was surreal. As I got closer and closer to Lac Megantic, I recognized some of the landmarks I saw on the news. In particular, the railroad crossings. And then I saw the town of Nantes. We stopped here because this is really where our story begins. This is where the train was parked for the night. It was also the first stop Mike made seven years ago. I remember the first thing sort of Driving into town, the first thing we came across before we were even in town was a locomotive uh, parked outside town in Nantes, and uh, it was running. So we we said, well, let's get video of this train. And, And so we jumped out of the car, grabbed a bit of video, and then realized it was running and parked and it seemed strange, like it seemed impossible. And then we, we sort of, we were, it, because it was running, I walked around it going, hello, hello, expecting there was somebody in it. But no, it was just parked. It was actually parked with the doors unlocked like and running above town. So that's how the trip started. As the investigation progressed, Mike would soon learn that the train he saw that day was parked in the very same spot that the derailed train parked the night of the tragedy. On the way into Lac Megantic, I was in awe by what I saw around me. As you could assume by its name, it sits on the shores of a lake and mountains dominate its horizon. It's a destination for nature lovers with a beach where people can swim or go water tubing. There are areas for camping and hiking in the summer and skiing and tubing in the winter. The town shares a border with Maine. In fact, when you look south across the lake, you can see the neighboring state's hills in the distance. In the center of the town sits its crown jewel, a brick church with this ornate steeple. Black Megantic is quaint and charming, the type of place that I feel like I've seen advertised as an ideal destination for a relaxing weekend getaway. And yet, I couldn't help but think about the reason why I was there. I saw the railroad tracks and the boardwalk that carve its way through the center of town. 30 meters south of the tracks is this empty space, a construction zone. (laughs) 
Normally, I wouldn't think twice about it, but this spot is a scar in this little town. A daily reminder of the devastation and ruin caused on July 6, 2013. It's also an attempt by the countless families who called this place their home to rebuild after an incredible tragedy. The majority of people who live in Lac-Megantic speak French. And full disclosure here, I don't speak French. So Mike helped me with some of the interviews. And he also introduced me to some of the people he got to know while he was covering this story. One of them is Gilles Flouet. He's an older gentleman with salt and pepper hair. He has a long gray and white beard and these piercing blue eyes. As we sat down to do the interview, he was quiet. He didn't smile much, but he told us what he witnessed that night in 2013. And even though he told his story in French, I hung on to every single word. I was taking a tour of downtown, as I had been doing regularly for years. And around 9.30, I stopped at Musique Café. There were two musicians I knew, and who were excellent. It was a party. There was a nice atmosphere. So I spent the evening there. Around 11.30, midnight, I started to think about going back home. So I did the rounds, said bye to all my friends. I took the sidewalk to walk home with a couple of friends. We had just crossed the track in the direction of my house, and the train passed four feet from behind me. Gilles said it felt like a strong gust of wind. The train just flew by. And although he had lived around trains his whole life and never thought twice about it before, this one was different. Usually, when a train passes through town, we hear a type of decompression. The lights, horns, the noise of the brakes creaking. There was none of that. And usually the train passes through the town around 10, 15, 20 kilometers an hour. This was coming in at 105 kilometers an hour. The time it took me to realize there was something happening behind me, the five locomotives, the train's back and the buffer had passed. I saw the faces of my friends who were about 30 feet from me. I had time to tell them to run. It's going to blow. In my head, I knew it was going to blow. In just half a minute, everything was over. Jill watched in horror. The bar, the Musi Cafe, where he had just spent the night with friends, engulfed in flames. The first batch of tanks that poured was front of the station, a switch that broke. The second one was in front of a funeral home. The last wagons that derailed smashed the buildings. The Musique Café and the building of La Rochelle, and then at the same time, the 20,000 power line that fed downtown. There was oil flowing all over the sewers. That's what made a major explosion. Then the power lines. The transformers, the circuit breakers, were skipping, and it looked like fireworks above us. It's like a firestorm erupted, and the Musique Café was at the center. 
This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Of it. We left Jill and Mike introduced me to another man he had gotten to know very well over the years. His name is Jean Clouseau. He lives in Sherbrooke, which is about an hour away from Lac Megantic, and he drove to meet us here. He told me that on the night of the derailment, he had been helping a friend paint her house in Cookshire, which is less than an hour away from Lac Megantic. He decided to stay the night and left a contact number with his daughter, Kathy, in case she needed to get in touch. Kathy lived in Lac Megantic, and John described her as someone who was always surrounded by friends. She was a wonderful, beautiful girl and uh, very expressive. And uh, as, King said, as my daughter said once, uh, when you enter in his heart, in her heart, it was forever. In the early morning of July 6th, Kathy was in her apartment, which was right across the street from the Musi Cafe. Jean described the horrors of that night. He said Kathy had enough time to make it out of the apartment, but she didn't escape. And a warning, what you're about to hear may be very disturbing. But she got get enough time to go out. So she, she died in the middle of the street. And she was burning because uh, his uh, weight was about, uh, I should say, uh, 120 pounds. And uh, all it rest was about uh, 18 pounds, if you want. She was consumed as uh, some uh, wood in the fire, you know. Jean found out about the derailment from his other daughter, Kim. Between the, the in the middle of the, the night, maybe around uh, 3 o'clock in the morning, something like that, the phone still ringing, ringing, ringing. But I was far away and I thought it was the apartment above, okay? So... I wake up and I go at the end of the apartment. The phone was uh, on the floor. So it was Kim. So uh, Kat, uh, Kim told me, uh, the, uh, said, she said, uh, don't be afraid that we're looking for Kathy. All, the center, all downtown is burning. Jean's brother picked him up and took him straight to Lac Megantic. But as they drove to the town, he was expecting the worst. And my brother said, I say, uh, keep faith, maybe we will find. I, I said, forget it. 
I'm pretty sure that she's dead. Kathy was one of the 47 people killed in the blast. 2,000 people were evacuated from their homes. In 2013, I was in Toronto watching the news coverage, and I'll be honest with you. At the time, I found it difficult to look at the photos and the videos of the aftermath. Buildings were destroyed, including the Musée Café, which was designated the ground zero of the explosion. The ground was black and burnt. Ashes coated everything. By the tracks, you could see the tanker cars, these massive dark cylinders, some of them looked crumpled, and around them were pieces of tangled metal. But if you were to look beyond the tracks, the train, and the tanker cars, all you see is barren land. Because all the buildings, the apartments, the stores, the restaurants, they were all gone, disintegrated. All that was left was rubble. After seeing the town with my own eyes, I needed to understand how this all happened. What was the chain of events that led to this horrific tragedy? I turned to Wendy Tadros. At the time of the derailment, she was chair for the Transportation Safety Board, which is the independent agency responsible for investigating rail accidents in Canada. Wendy told me the railroad was operated by the Montreal, Maine and Atlantic Railway, or MMA for short, and said in the days leading up to the derailment, the train was experiencing some mechanical issues. The lead locomotive was smoking, smoking a lot, and had problems maintaining speed. We later learned that oil was leaking from an engine bearing that had not been properly repaired. So having made it to Nantes, which is just outside Lac Megantic, late in the evening on July the 5th, 2013, the locomotive engineer parked the train on a descending grade just outside of Lac Megantic. The lead locomotive was left running and seven handbrakes were applied. And then only a rudimentary brake test was conducted. The engineer then left for the night. I wanted to take a moment to explain something here. The engineer Wendy is speaking about is Thomas Harding. Months after the derailment, the TSB released a railway investigation report. It covers a number of details, precipitating factors and recommendations, which we will get into a little bit later on. But it also describes exactly what happened that night. And there's one point that stood out to me when I was reading the report. When Harding left the train that night, he called a cab to take him to a nearby hotel. When the cab driver arrived, he noticed smoke coming from the lead locomotive, and he even saw oil droplets land on the cab's windshield. He felt like something was wrong that night, and he even asked Harding if the train should be left that way. Harding said that he reported the problem to MMA, and they said leave it that way, and it would be addressed in the morning. Just a short time later, a fire started in that lead locomotive. Someone had called 911 to report the fire, and the local fire department was dispatched. That fire was caused by leaking oil. Here's the Knott's fire chief, Patrick Lambert, speaking about it at the time. They came, they looked at it, they looked it over, we inspected the engine, everything was okay, everything was out. 
They've confirmed that everything was okay, that we could leave. Yes, the train was supposed to be secure. But it wasn't. When fire crews shut off the engine, the air in some of the brakes began to leak out. Those were the brakes that were holding the train in place. And when I heard this, I was a bit confused. Was this normal procedure to leave the train running? I asked Wendy about this. It was part of the procedure that was used by this railway. If you keep the engines on, you keep the air on, which is one source of of holding the train. The handbrakes were also in place, but they were now the only thing that was securing this 10-ton train parked on a hill with a downward incline. Unfortunately, there was not enough force from the handbrakes, and just after midnight on the early morning of July 6th, the train began to slowly roll towards Black Megantic. 63 cars derailed near the center of town, and 59 of those cars were torn open, and about 6 million liters of volatile crude oil was spilled. In audio recordings that were released to the public, Harding can be heard speaking with Richard Labrie, a rail traffic controller, in the moments after the explosion. This recording was evidence that would be heard by a jury in a criminal investigation of the derailment, which we also will get into a little bit later on. The explosion consumed most of Lac Megantic's downtown core. And Mike Armstrong said when he first arrived into town seven years ago, his first instinct was to try and speak with those injured in the blast. I remember saying to the cameraman I was with, uh, we'll have to go to the hospital and get, you know, interviews with injured people or family members or whatever. And within a few hours, you realize that there weren't that many people injured in this. I expected the hospital to be full of people. But what happened here, literally right in front of us, is people either got away and they ran away and they were fine or they were burned alive. The people in between that were just injured, there were barely any of them. I was shocked. Mike says there weren't many people injured. The derailment and the fire left little chance of survival. The week following the derailment, politicians from all three levels of government came to Lac Megantic to witness the aftermath firsthand. At the time, Stephen Harper was prime minister, and he spoke to reporters about the devastation. People who aren't here, uh, you know, it looks like a war zone here. A a large part of the downtown has been destroyed. It's just, it is really just terrible. There's been loss of life, as we all know, and there are still many, many people missing. This is an unbelievable disaster that has occurred here, and... Uh, Obviously, uh, there'll be investigations to ascertain what's occurred, make sure it can't happen again. Also that week, Edward Burkhart, an executive with the Montreal, Maine and Atlantic Railway, came to the town. He wasn't well-received. Instead, he was immediately swarmed by media and met by angry residents. Burkhardt spoke with reporters four days after the derailment. 
tragedy. I understand their tragedy. I, I, uh, I feel personally absolutely rotten about it. But, uh, but what can you do at this point? Mike was there when Burkhard arrived in town. It's hard to forget. It's the craziest scrum I've ever been a, a part of. Um, and in a way, you know, the media circled him like a donut. Like we were in every direction around him, following him as he walked around. And, and uh, police were there as well. And between police and journalists, we might have protected him because there were people in town that were very, very upset. And here was this guy who everybody knew was the top of that company. Um, walking right through downtown Lac Megansic. If you look back at the stuff he said, he actually told us, uh, basically on day two, day two or day three, whatever it was, exactly what happened. He said the engineer didn't put the right number of uh, handbrakes on, left the train, there was this uh, fire, engine fire, it was shut off, and, and that's what happened. So people were upset, but I'll, I'll give him credit for one thing. He showed up, and I, as far as... I'm concerned. He did tell the truth. It took the Transportation Safety Board months to investigate and explain exactly what happened that night. Before the investigation was fully completed, the TSB worked with its U.S. counterparts and produced an interim report in January 2014, which included a list of recommendations. So we made three recommendations right off the bat, and they addressed the need for route planning and analysis for dangerous goods the importance of emergency response assistance plans, and the risk of carrying flammable liquids in Class 111 tank cars. And this, of course, entailed the need for tougher standards for those tank cars. After identifying these issues, I wondered, were changes made? Yes, absolutely. So for the first two recommendations, the route planning recommendation and the emergency response recommendation, they were fully implemented quite quickly. So we now have railways planning the routes on which dangerous goods are carried and addressing the risks on those routes to make them safer. And should there be an accident, emergency response assistance plans are in place in all those places where railways carry dangerous goods. On the tank cars, there have been two significant developments. Firstly, petroleum crude oil is no longer carried in these older Class 111 tank cars. And secondly, safer, more robust tank cars are being placed into service. So I think that it's the figure is close to 60% of the older tank cars that are used to carry flammable liquids have been replaced with either new or retrofitted cars. So these cars meet a much higher standard. Okay, so we know changes were made following the derailment, but I wanted to know why weren't these changes made before? Wendy explained to me that concerns were raised with the TSB before the Lac-Megantic train derailment. The investigation really brought a whole number of issues that had either been on the periphery, or they had been talked about a great deal, but but uh, the changes hadn't been made. And this investigation just really brought them to the fore. For instance, on the safety of tank cars, 111 tank cars had been a concern in North America for many, many years. They, they just did not hold up well enough in an accident. And both the TSB and the NTSB south of the border had pointed out problems with these tank cars. 
as the accidents mounted up, the case for change became stronger. Runaway trains had been on the radar of the TSB and the NTSB for some time before Lac-Megantic. But in Lac-Megantic, we learned you, you can't really continue to rely on everybody following the rules. You need some other kind of system, some kind of physical defense. And this continues to be a concern as the number of uncontrolled movements has trended upward. So you really need to have something in place for these low probability but high consequence accidents. And uh, certainly runaway trains were an issue that were known before Lac-Megantic. So sometimes it just takes that one more accident to get that response from industry and government. In August 2014, 13 months after the derailment, the TSB released an almost 200-page-long railway investigation report into exactly what happened that night in July. As part of that report, the TSB identified 18 factors that contributed to the derailment. Here's Wendy to explain. Well, on the physical side of things, we found everything from problems with the locomotives to how the train was secured to the crashworthiness of those Class 11 tank cars. We also look at things on a system-wide basis. We found problems with the company, its practices, its culture, and with its uh, safety management system. We also looked at the regulator, Transport Canada, and its oversight. And we found safety management audits and follow-ups on safety deficiencies were wanting. So that's sort of the broad spectrum of the kinds of things that we found. I had to take a minute to really think. The way that Wendy explained it to me, I wondered, if one of those 18 contributing factors didn't happen, could this devastation have been avoided? Well, I think that's probably true of of any accident, that uh, any accident, if you take something out of that chain of events or you change one factor, then that accident's not going to happen because every accident is, is a series, a chain of events that in motion. And the same was true in, in Lac-Megantic. So uh, could it have been prevented? Yes. Um, you know, if you change any of those factors, then, then you don't have an accident. But it was very, very complex. One thing I should note, the railway investigation report didn't point out who was responsible for the derailment. Wendy said it's because the Transportation Safety Board has a no-fault, no-blame mandate, which means the organization wasn't going to point out the person or people responsible for this catastrophe. So who was responsible for all of this? And did anyone get charged? In May 2014, 10 months after the derailment, three people were charged with criminal negligence in connection with the derailment. Train engineer Thomas Harding, operations manager Jean Dimitri, and rail traffic controller Richard Labrie. I was there the day the three of them were arrested and taken to the courthouse in downtown Lake Megansic. And the thing that I'll never forget about that was they walked, sort of walked the gauntlet. They came out of the police van into the courtroom, and there were all these sort of townsfolks who were watching them do this. I mean, here were three people arrested for this huge tragedy. These are the people that are, are going to be charged. And yet there was almost silence as they walked from the police van to the door. Uh, it's kind of like being beyond anger. 
People didn't have to yell. Everybody knew they were angry. Thomas Harding, Jean Demetri, and Richard Labrie all pleaded not guilty to the charges. More than four years after the derailment, 12 jurors were selected, and the trial began in October 2017. It took place in Sherbrooke. Jean Clouseau, who lost his daughter, Kathy, in the explosion, went to the trial every single day. So uh, I wanted to know exactly what happened that night. That's where he met Mike, who was also at the courthouse covering the trial. It wasn't held right here in town, and yet there were people who did come every day. People from the town were there in the halls and in, in the courtroom every day following the trial closely. A lot of emotion. And here are these three people who are accused of being responsible for this horrible, horrible tragedy and 47 deaths. And they're just walking the halls in and out beside the townsfolks uh, for days and days and weeks and weeks. The trial went on for three months and the jury heard testimony from dozens of witnesses and experts. They looked at photos and listened to the audio recordings from that night between Harding and Labrie. Finally, in January, the jury began deliberations. And then at the end, it was nine days of deliberation, as I recall, which felt like a long time. Like, you know, you think, oh, maybe it'll come back quickly. And then one day stretches into two, stretches into three, and then four and five. And it went, and then you start to realize, okay, the jury's having trouble with this. If it's taking this long uh, to come back. They had deliberated for nine days. And on January 19th, 2018, Thomas Harding, Jean Demetri, and Richard Labrie were all found not guilty. Like I mentioned, Kathy's dad attended every day of the trial. And when I asked him what he thought of the verdicts, his answer, it surprised me. I wonder, after nine days of deliberation, uh, I was uh, shaking up a little bit. You know what's going to happen? Why it's so long? And, uh, but uh, when the verdict uh, fall, I was very happy. He says the derailment wasn't Harding, Labrie, or Dimitri's fault. And it was the company who put the policies and procedures in place that led to the tragedy. Mike remembers that following the verdict, Harding was supposed to speak publicly for the first time ever. So we waited a moment, and then Tom Harding came out of the courtroom, stood behind between his two lawyers, and we went, okay, Mr. Harding, there's something you'd like to say. And he paused, 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 and then he just turned, looked at his lawyer, and went, I can't do this, and he walked away. Uh, it, was, it was too emotional for him. Instead, one week later, he finally spoke for the first time. I do not find the words sufficient to express my sympathies. I'm deeply sorry for my part of responsibility in this tragedy. I assume this responsibility now, and I will always assume it. I also wondered, whatever happened to the company that employed Harding, Demetri, and Labrie, the Montreal, Maine, and Atlantic Railway? Well, MMA was also charged with criminal negligence, but the charge was dropped following the trial in April 2018. At the time, prosecutors were unsure they would be able to get a conviction, in part because the three former MMA employees had been acquitted. In addition to the criminal charges, the federal government charged MMA and six of its employees. 
These charges were laid for violating the Fisheries Act, as well as the Rail Safety Act. If you're wondering what violations were made around the Fisheries Act, the courts found MMA guilty of unlawfully depositing damaging substances into water frequented by fish. That's the crude oil that spilled into Lac Megantic and a nearby river. In 2018, the company and the employees settled with the federal government. MMA was given the maximum fine. The company had to pay $1 million, which was credited to the Environmental Damages Fund. It was used for decontamination efforts. Of the six MMA employees who pleaded guilty, five of them, Michael Horan, Jean Dimitri, Kenneth Strout, Lynn Labonte, and Robert Grinrod, were each ordered to pay a $50,000 fine for violating the Rail Safety Act. And Thomas Harding, the sixth employee, was given a conditional sentence of six months in prison. He served it in the community. Shortly after the derailment, MMA declared bankruptcy. And in 2014, it was acquired by Fortress Investment Group and renamed Central Maine and Quebec Railway. The one thing I wondered was how soon after the derailment did trains start coming through Lac Megantic again? About five months later, in December 2013, the scorched earth of Lac Megantic was once again giving passage to trains. It's something that frustrates Gilles Flouet to this day. What made me feel the most like crap, excuse the expression, it was that it, it took, I don't know, like two to three years ago to get the city cleaned up. But two, three months later, tracks were up and running and trains were passing through again. That was an insult to intelligence. Today, it doesn't make me react much. Last week, at one point, I was at the memorial. I was sitting there, and at one point a train passed with big containers when it whistled. I was sitting there, and it brought me to tears. I don't know if it caused a vibration inside me. On the night of the derailment, Jill watched the bar where he had just spent the night go up in flames. I wanted to find out what happened to the Musi Cafe. So I found Yannick Gagné. He was the owner of the cafe, and he told me following the derailment, everything changed, and he became a shell of his former self. I didn't know what to do. I was quite messed up, and then that was the problem. I rebuilt it, but it wasn't me who rebuilt it. It's another Yannick Garnier, who was a zombie, as you might say. I was pushed by many locals. You can't abandon us. You need to keep going. You can't let us down. And so I redid it. And I did it for the city of Lac Megantic and for the people of Megantic first. I never did it for myself. The point was, I want to make a place like we had so people can go out, have fun and life and get back to normal. The new Musi Cafe is 400 meters away from the old location. I sat down with him for this interview, and something happened that gave me goosebumps. As Yannick was telling me what a Saturday night looks like at the new Musi Cafe, <laughs> a train wound its way through downtown Lac Megantic. 
I felt the hair stand on the back of my neck, and I looked across and I saw Yannick. He looked upset, frustrated. He told me a train goes through Lac Megantic every day. Sometimes it could be two or three trains. Every time. I get rage every time. There are nine rail crossings that weave through the town. Gilbert Carrette lives in Lac Megantic, and he's part of a coalition of concerned citizens who lobbied for a bypass to keep trains away from the center of town. In our battle, the, the coalition in our battle, we were fighting for safer rail, and we were fighting for a contour lane, you know, a bypass from Megantic to stop this, these, and these trains going through Megantic. And in 2018, the federal government announced it would be moving forward with this rail bypass. Today, we are taking an important step to help heal the wounds of a community that has been through so much. The tracks will move north of the town. And while it was a welcomed announcement for most people, some residents will have their land expropriated because of the bypass. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau addressed that issue in 2018 as well. Any path is going to have consequences on some individuals. Any other path would have consequences on other uh, individuals and landowners. The bypass will be jointly funded at both the provincial and federal level, and it's projected to cost around $133 million. The feds are covering 60% of the cost, while Quebec will be funding 40%. It's projected to be completed by 2023. Years after the derailment, people are still dealing with the pain from that tragedy. Gilles Flouet says he's sometimes transported back to that night. Post-traumatic symptoms are kind of strange. I'd hear people talk about that coming back from the war and stuff, or had survived catastrophic events. I couldn't figure out what it could be. But post-traumatic symptoms are, it's like a virus in a computer, but that manifests itself not all the time. You can be at one of these demonstrations all of a sudden. A simple, banal thing that makes you startle. Like, right now, there's some work being done on the street next to our house. Heavy machinery that are in the process of doing all the infrastructure. There are noises that make me jump every time. It takes me back again to the derailment. It can be the sound of a train. It could be a sound that sounds like a security valve. Any sounds like that sound similar to that. It, it just makes me freeze up. It's all manifestations of post-traumatic symptoms. It's a feeling that many people who witnessed the horror that night feel. And I wondered, how did this community move forward? I turned to the mayor of Lac Megantic, Julie Morin. I think it is necessary that every year we highlight this event. At the same time, we have to find the way forward to survive. Whether it's a collective mourning like us, we've lived, or an individual mourning that each of us live, we must continue to move forward. We always pay attention to, yes, because I think this is also a very important point in the history of Lac Megantic and to the people who live here today. And at the same time, we always make sure that when we highlight this event to announce good news, to remind us of all the ways we have traveled over the last seven years. Lac Megantic, the Megantic Quoi, 
have a normal life too, like all Quebec citizens, with injuries, like we all have. But at the same time, 364 days a year are normal days, with lots of activities. Our wish is that we stop showing these train footage, smoking. We want to remember the humans that we lost, the economic losses. Ultimately, we want to continue. We want the city to radiate positivity. We want people. We want people to come to Lac Mégantic because if the only thing they know of Lac Mégantic is the tragedy, then they don't know Lac Mégantic. Then I think our citizens deserve more attention on what they have become. Jean says he copes by focusing his attention on his daughter, Kim. He's a grandpa now. Kim had a girl of her own three years ago. And now she's pregnant with her second. He still thinks about Kathy each and every day. He told me for many years he dreamed of traveling to France. He wanted to make the pilgrimage to Santiago de Compostela in Spain. And after Kathy died, he made a promise. I said, uh, Kathy, if one day I have compensation, monetary compensation, I promise you that I'm going to go walk Compostelle, starting for friends and things. And uh, I did it last year. He kept his promise. And Jean told me when he arrived, he was joined by someone special. I walk into a street and I, I see on the wall a big, uh, a big sign, Kathy. So I take a picture. So I said to my mind, I felt my mind. Kathy came to tell me, Dad, thank you. You did your promises. As I said my goodbyes and drove away from Lac Megantic, I thought of all the amazing people I had met. And while their tragedy is now part of their history, it doesn't define their future. Lac Megantic was and still is a picturesque town, home to people who are resilient and they're focused on moving forward. Thank you for joining me this week. Whatever Happened To is written and produced by me, Erica Vela, with producer Dila Velezquez. Our audio producer is Rob Johnson. I wanted to thank Jean Clouseau, Gilles Flouet and Yannick Gagné for sharing their stories. A huge thanks also goes out to Mike Armstrong and Global National for helping with this episode. Also thanks to Carly Myers and Eric Scott for their voice work. A big thanks also goes out to Alia Adam, who helped with translation, and a special thanks to Chris Bassett and Beatrice Politi. Let us know what you thought of this episode, and please share it with a friend. It will help us to grow the show and bring you more incredible stories. You can also help us out by giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. 
You can also reach out to me personally. We're always looking for new stories. So if there's a new story you want us to revisit, you can reach me on Twitter at Erica Bella or email me at erica.bella at globalnews.ca. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.